Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Greetings, this is Paul Holdengraber, your host for the Quarantine Tapes, brought to you by Onassis LA and Dublab. I am thrilled to announce that we have asked various former Quarantine Tape guests to host, during a week, guests of their choice in total freedom. They have absolute carte blanche. This week, I have asked the very great Imani Perry, Professor of African Studies at Princeton University to serve as our host. Imani Perry is an intellectual, a writer, born in Birmingham, Alabama, at the dawn of the freedom movement. She lives the life of the mind through literature, criticism, music, and art. Perry's hallmarks are passionate curiosity, rigorous contemplation, and dedication to the collective we. Her children, Freeman and Issa Rab, she tells me, keep her honest and dreaming. I hope you enjoy this week of the Quarantine Tapes, hosted by Imani Perry. Hi, Esther. Dr. Hi. Shu. It's so wonderful to talk to you. Um, Before we start, I just wanted to thank you for being one of our physician leaders in what has been a really difficult season. Um, And you have spoken to this moment, which has been so terrifying with brilliance and the depth of knowledge and generosity and clarity that I know means a, a great deal to lots of people, including me. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. It doesn't feel like any of those things on this end. <laughs> it just feels like trying to make it through a day at a time um, with a lot of uncertainty, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so we graduated from Yale College in 1994 um, and you were an English major, correct? Oops. That's right. And I guess that made me wonder, you know, you're a lover of literature, if there had been anything there has been anything that you've read or reflected on during whether it's poetry or a novel or that has been meaningful for you as we've sort of made our way through 2020 and 2021 there's been so much this has actually been a big reading year for me just because i mean as busy as work is we've all also needed respite and it's also been a lot of home time, you know? So I think time when normally things would be a little bit more frantic professionally. Um, I, I just, I constantly had a pile of books by my bedside and a lot of them really helped me have humility and grapple with the role that healthcare has paid has played in doubling down on inequities. Um, you know, so books like um, Cast, Medical Apartheid. So you want to talk about race? Just you know, I mean, there are books that America was reading, really. But uh, but especially, I mean, there were pieces of health and health equity. You know, the writings of Martin Luther King. Basically, if you if you looked at anyone who wrote about 
um, racism, about inequity, health was there and healthcare was there. And just like any other public policy, the policies the, that we created, the institutions we built um, and were um, very happy participants of, you know, all had components of structural racism that um, that really had, you know, it just had this manifestation in this pandemic that I think was the most disturbing thing for me as this thing played out. There was always something and I'm not, you know, I'm an ER doc, so I don't have a long attention span. So I tend to read things. I usually have three or four books and I just pull one out and I'll read like a chapter or two, you know, and then I'll switch it up and I'll read a different book. And that's how I get through books over time. And, um, and so it's been, there's been a lot of different things in my rotation, but, but certainly reading, reflecting has been a part of this. And it's also just a nice break from the science. I mean, there's only so many preprint scientific, you know, publications you can read before you're like, oh, can I have something that feels like a cohesive piece of writing? It's interesting because I was going to ask you about being an ER doc and I was imagining that it's you know, it's a place where you probably see this, the entire spectrum of, you know, of, of certainly of the places that you, you know, you live in, in Oregon, but also of inequality, right? Because every, there are a whole host of people who come to the, that's their primary care, unfortunately, because there's not a lot of access. So you see, imagine you see the, the world really. That was really the surprising thing about becoming an ER doctor. I mean, I think, was it in college where we started having ER watch parties? I mean, the show ER was so popular. That was college, right? I remember being in like the old J.E. Buttery that was so gross, you know? Um, (laughs) It was like probably not code, you know what I mean? Uh, But hanging out there on Thursday nights and we would all kind of cram in there and watch this TV. And and that was really my, I I didn't have doctors in my family. And so that was my image of what the ER was, you know? It was like, traumas, heart attacks, rushing from scene to scene, you know, there was just kind of this, um, this pace to it, this, the high acuity, all these things I imagined. And there were human interest stories woven in there, but I thought that was part of the drama of the TV show. And then as I started to practice, I realized the heart attacks, the traumas, those things are actually the simple part of your job. I mean, you know, it's like somebody's coming in, they're having a heart attack and they're about to die. It's like, what I do isn't a high cognitive load. It needs to happen really fast. And we're working together as a team, but it's not like, I'm like, what creatively can I do here? Or, you know, what, 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 you know, there's just a standard of care and we implement it. Do you know what I mean? And so once you've been practicing for more than say five or seven years, that's not the hard part of the job. The hard part of the job is all those pieces that no one has an answer for because we've built these systems and structures that are so wrong. And any person who retains their humanity um, from the time before they became doctors um, and retains their like kind of clear perspective can see that there are things that we do every day in practice that our systems lead us to do, that our individual choices lead us to do, that are simply wrong and not what a kind or decent person would do, you know? And so, I mean, you have people coming in in the dead of winter and you're like, why are you here? And they're like, uh, I have chest pain. I mean, it's clear they're there because it's negative 15 degrees outside and they don't have a house and the shelter fills up at 7 p.m. And if you actually are semi-employed, you cannot get there in time. Sometimes they're with their families and they have diarrhea running down their leg because they had no access to a bathroom and they're on insulin, but insulin needs to be refrigerated and there's no place they could find to refrigerate their insulin. And you're basically going to clean them up, give them paper scrubs and send them out. And you're like, my mother would be ashamed of me if she saw me right now. And yet this is what we do. And why do we have a system that actually sets up this person to fail again and again and again? And we just do the band-aid 
quick shower, paper scrubs and send them out again um, to fail again. And it feels wrong every day. And then you just have these moments where you're like charging out of there. And you're like, I have to do something about this. I mean, I think so many of us feel this way. And to not find an outlet for that emotion, I think, is the recipe for burnout and is why so many people are disillusioned with medicine. I mean, lots of other things, but I think that is a, a big chunk of it for people. Mm. So, well, what, what I'm curious as to at what point did you know that you wanted to be a doctor and then the decision to commit to ER? Yeah. So I think at some point it was really late. So I was English major and not pre-med at Yale. And so senior year kind of got to that point where we're like, what are we doing after graduation? <laughs> I don't know if you, if you knew. I didn't really know. Um, I didn't have a plan. And so um, I ended up taking a couple years and doing my pre-meds in two years after college. Mm-hmm. And so kind of decided a little bit senior year that I was going to head in that direction and then kind of committed a year later um, after I'd gotten through pre-meds and taken my MCATs and, um, and gotten a research position and some things to do in that, in that gap space. Um, and then ER... My very first, so, you know, like I, I could not leave New Haven. It was like this rubber band that kept on pulling me back. So I, I was like, of all places. So I worked for Yale summer programs for a whole bunch of summers after we graduated, wow. know, which was so fun. It was like, you were still there, but you were not really there, but it was really fun. You know, all these kids come in, they're meeting Yale for the first time. I was a, like a, a program director, I think. And then something else. I can't remember, but I did it for like four or five years. So um, in those summers, I started doing some research uh, up at Yale New Haven Hospital. And one of those research projects was in the ER. I was recruiting patients to an asthma study. So I would just sit there. I mean, I would sit there all night recruiting patients. And um, and because it was slow, sometimes the docs would spend time with me. And I thought they were just wonderful people. And then I started doing procedures. You know, they'd be like, do you want to help out sewing this hand or, you know, um, help out with this trauma or just come in with us to the room. And I saw just the really amazing spectrum of disease of um, just, it's really about, uh, it's not just what they present with, it's the whole backstory, you know, it's like, what is the context of your life? that leads you to this moment where you came to the ER and eliciting that story actually puts you in the best position to take good care of them. And so there is this narrative component to the job, you know, that's fascinating. Yeah. It's always interesting. Um, I mean, it's funny cause I was wondering, and I, you sort of answered this implicitly, whether it was, um, whether you were, you were, you became invested in, in social justice and equity issues as you became a physician, as, as you be, went in the path of sort of practicing medicine or whether that sort of led you to the past. And it, it sounds like the latter is true, that right, that you got invested as you were um, doing the work in New Haven, which is, of course, a, a city in which people are suffering a great deal. Um, yeah, and really were then. Um, uh, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think I probably was very receptive substrate, you know, to mm-hmm. doing some advocacy work. But I, I also think um, as you do these experiences, they in, they put their stamp on you. Like I spent, before I did med school um, and went that path, I spent, so the summer between our junior and senior years, I spent at a newspaper um, in Cleveland, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And I was, a, I was an editorial intern. So they kind of rotate you through um, all these, you know, different beats. And, um, and I had to cut one day some sort of tragedy I think there was a house fire and somebody was gravely injured and 
I was, I was on that beat. So I went and helped cover that story. And I was like, I don't really want to be on this side of it. Do you know what I mean? Like something horrible had happened and there, and you're basically like document and do not assist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And I was yeah, like, okay, I kind of, this, that was a very helpful experience for me. Cause I was like, I love the writing and I love the narrative, but the document and do not assist piece that felt off for me, you know? And I think journalism has changed. I actually, I look at journalists as more change agents in this moment, very deliberately. So, you know, it's like during this pandemic, I've really thought of it as a partnership between public health and journalism. Um, but I think then the mentorship was much more, you stay as objective and out of it as you can, you know? Just document and do not intervene in any way. Um, and I mean, you had people who were uh, maybe still, um, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners who had like major mental health breakdowns afterwards because people were like, how did you document that and not intervene? But that was their job. I mean, that's drilled into you, you know, when you're um, when you're kind of on your apprenticeship and training mode. Anyway, so I was like, that is not for me because I would like to roll up my sleeves and do something. And so, I mean, that's basically the, the you know, the mental health that led me to medicine and doing stuff, something. You mentioned earlier um, that, I mean, I think that's also such a, a powerful point and it, it resonates with something you said earlier about how all of us, even those of us who are relatively secure are in, um, this is incre an incredibly trying time. And I, I noticed that one of your recent articles is about parenting in the context of um, of COVID. And I, how, I mean, it, I'd be interested to know a bit about how you manage a demanding life engaged with the public and your own um, emotional economy and also tending to children, which is this kind of which I have personally found, you know, has, a, it's, it's challenging. I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you saw part of my life just now. I mean, so what, what people listening don't know is like one of my children just, I have a sign up outside that says, do not come in, you know, with us, like a skull and crossbones. And my child was just like, I'll come in. Yes. <laughs> came, in <laughs> came in with her stuffed and she put my hat on a stuffed animal. I mean, there's just, it's just all this chaos all the time. Um, but I, I mean, I think, I think one of the first things is um, I just, there's so many things that fill my cup, you know, right now. And I think part of it is as challenging as it was to be a healthcare professional, there's always this element too of, I feel very lucky to be able to be in this work because I also have so many friends who are like, I am frustrated about the way the pandemic is going. I wish I could do something to help, you know? And I know a lot of people felt this almost is it guilt? I don't know. It's like this certainly restlessness, this dissatisfaction or this frustration with not being able to help when they are, you know, people who have energy and love and generosity um, and just, are, you know, cannot help. And being in a position where there's always something I can do. I mean, too many things that I can do. You know, it's like every night it's like, I could do a little more before I go to sleep. You know, I think that was, that was like a really rough part of the first four months of the pandemic where none of us could sleep any of the time mm -hmm. because there was always something we could do that perhaps translated into lives, you know? And so there was this like, uh, it felt like too much many times still. However, we can contribute. And I think there is something in that that is really regenerating in parallel with all the, you know, the, the burnout and the moral injury that people are feeling. So, and then the other thing about a lot of healthcare workers, I mean, we had pay cuts, you know, we certainly have had some furloughs and layoffs, but for the most part, we've remained employed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how do you, there's just a piece of this when so many people have lost so much in this pandemic that I feel very blessed. And so, yeah, I mean, 
my kids are home. I have a home, you know, yeah, right. um, it's like, yes, I have exposure. You know, I have increased exposures at work, but my kids have remained safe. My, you know, my household has remained safe. My bubble has remained safe. I have a bubble. You know, it's like, I have so many patients who, when I'm like, okay, you've been exposed to coronavirus, you now must go on isolation, you know? Um, for or quarantine or isolation, depending on if they got diagnosed or not, or just exposed um, for 10 to 14 days. And they're just like, that's not a thing. I live in a multifamily household. You know, we all share rooms. Um, somebody has to work. Otherwise I don't feed my children. I'm fairly certain they would die first of that than coronavirus. You know, it's just like not a thing. And so I think that's where, again, working in the ER in particular is like this constant reminder of what I go home to. Um, and just like the enormous... I mean, privilege is so overused, but I really, I feel like it's a privilege to have this job. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that like somebody let me into med school, you know, 25 years ago. And that led me to get to help. I mean, it's like you wanted to get in so badly so that you could be a helper. Then you can't be like, ah, oh, I'm a helper. This sucks. You know, I mean, you can, you can, it's been an extraordinarily hard time, but there's just a little piece of me inside that is always just fundamentally grateful that I got into med school and then got into residency and then got hired by a bunch of people. And so that I'm in a position to help. You know, I love, but I, I, I really do like the way that you, that you use the word privilege because so often it's used as this sort of, um, as a proxy for um, not being involved as opposed to as an opportunity, right? Do meaningful work, which really is a privilege, right? Because you have, and to do like deeply meaningful work, you have to have access to the to the tools to do so. Yeah, I think that's it. I kind of, you know, some of these words become so overused that they, you know, you then use them and you kind of cringe because you're like, I know that sounds like I'm just dropping in a buzzword to excuse me, <laughs> you know, to, to kind of excuse a whole host of ways in which I'm skating by and I'm trying not to use it like that. <laughs> me, I mean, it really resonates with me um, because to be able to, um, you know, feel as though the work that you do can speak to the moment is... It's just powerful. One of the things, and this is, oh, and this is actually connects to one of the the ways in which we sort of reconnected on social media was you were giving me advice about trolls, right, and about the, you know, there's this white supremacist, white nationalist, misogynistic world on social media, and we enter into it to try to share things that we know and like sort of and 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 advocate. Um, how? And that you're remarkable for sort of just kind of. So I was just asking about the um, the sort of public realm of and and the way we have to we're forced to interface with the ugliest segments of our society if we enter into the public arena. And I just wanted to know if you could talk a little about about a bit about that as a, as a woman, as a woman of color, as a professional, and all those. Yeah. yeah, totally. This is something that I was lucky that I got to go a few rounds with it before coronavirus, because I think it would have been a lot on top of also trying to figure out the pandemic and my place in it and the messaging and collaborations and things like that. But, you know, I had a couple of pretty remarkable moments on social media. You know, one was was where I had posted a thread talking about racism from patients in the emergency department. Um, that was like, must have been like 2017, maybe 2016. You know, it was like, it was a while ago. And I mean, there was a really wonderful positive response. But embedded in there, actually, there were a lot of people who 
messaged, you know, posted on the thread, actually even emailed me, um, wrote to my office about how I was inventing my experience of racism, you know? And so that was um, the first time it felt really intrusive into my life. And I had to figure out, oh my gosh, like, I mean, I went from being like, do I need to lock down my account? And, you know, um, and then last, was it last summer? Oh my gosh, I think it was not last summer, but the summer before I put out this fairly benign tweet, I thought. It just said white people can be exhausting. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, you know, to me, I thought I was so surprised that became a big deal because, um, first of all, I said can be, you know, and I thought exhausting was an extremely benign word. And um, and I also thought it was it was factual, (laughs) you know, Um, (laughs) and um, and I uh, you cannot say the word white person. At that time, at that time, you cannot say the word white person. There's something inherently hostile about using people don't want to be identified as being. It, it's very interesting. It's remarkable. It's remarkable how you can both be like that does not describe me, and yet I'm really owning this 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 comment as being personal to me. And so um, that was probably what you know. That was when I discovered there are a couple topics that really make people want to get out and do something to you. You know, um, racism is certainly one of them. Actually. Um, um, vaccines are one of them. Um, animal experimentation is another. And then um, gun safety. Those are the ones that this is a whole education I got from my hospital cybersecurity expert. He was like, those are the issues that make people want to come out, actually show up to harm you, um, or at least to threaten you. And so, you know, that was a really wild time because the threats to my hospital got so intense. Um, and they were so specific in terms of harm to me that my the operator, there's like a, you know, a team of people who uh, answer the the information line at the hospital, they uh, they took turns checking in with me to make sure I was okay. Those people who I've never interacted, they're like, you know, wonderful human beings. And they were like, is this doctor okay? And they would call me and check up on me, which is amazing. And then I got pulled for my shifts um, and we had to have like a police duty around my house. And so that was like a really interesting education. I mean, I had to do a lot of things to try to remove my children's names from the internet and things like that. Um, and I, you know, changed the security behind all my accounts. But I was like, I had to learn really fast. Um, and so I had things in place in the pandemic. And then I started to notice how often these exact things were happening. And it was almost always women of color. I mean, people just, it, there is, you know, nothing people hate more than women of color um, speaking out in a bold and truthful way without um, in some way kind of conceding, you know, a point to the dominant, you know, um, uh, population. And so, um, I, I kind of put together this little like package and part of it was like not being on lists on Twitter. You know, when I posted this thing about how to get yourself off lists, it just had this like ridiculous, um, response. And I think of it was a lot of us are kind of floating around having these experiences and kind of not sharing how to be safe. And I think now, um, you know, so I'm involved with this, I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff around vaccine delivery, particularly to communities of color who have been hit the hardest. It's basically what I'm you know, doing night and day right now. And um, we are doing little uh, initiatives like having, you know, maybe some conversations with well-recognized local or national celebrities and healthcare workers. And as we bring in these healthcare workers, we realized we have to actually do an onboarding process where we lock down all their accounts because we're going to be talking very frankly about racism. So we need to make sure that they go through a preparation process, um, take an online harassment course, um, secure all their accounts, you know, check and see what is in the public domain and try to remove it. And in some case, if they have, if they're on a website, make sure that their contact information isn't really accessible. And as I go through this, it's like, it's 
such a shame that we have to do this. But on the other hand, you know, we have all this um, knowledge and experience from having been there and it is so worth it, you know, and again, you know, it comes back to if that is the price we pay for getting to also be part of the conversation in a visible, positive, reliable way, totally fine. Pay my toll. You know what I mean? It's like, here's my credit card, pay the toll because that is fine. Um, it's ineffective largely. Um, and I just have a thicker skin now. Um, but it's like this thing, you just have to kind of a get over the emotional mental toll of it, B secure your family and make sure they feel they're comfortable with that non-zero risk that you have added to your life. Um, and then C put in all the protections you can, which is a little bit of a drain on your time, um, but becomes a little bit routine over time. So that's kind of how I think of it in general, but I, I am really concerned and, um, I mean, I mean, I think we need to do a lot more to protect people who are out there. And I wish it didn't have to be on their own time. You know, so if someone gave me like a bazillion dollars right now um, to start something, I feel like I would probably put in place an institute where we um, we have a like a tactical team that just goes, you know, like I see a woman of color. She's starting to speak up and really find her voice. We're just going to go in there give her a suite of protections, um, protect her wherever we can in her thread, you know, um, and to just like wrap it up so that she can move forward um, and really put her energy towards her thing and not towards this distraction. That's, I mean, that sounds amazing. And I was just, you know, it's interesting that you say that because it is, when you first experience it, there's something profoundly isolating. Um, and I mean, my department, because I teach in African American studies, is this recipient of all kinds of death threats constantly. Oh. Put in, you know, um, we have panic buttons, all these sorts of things. But oh my God. even though, you know, we're faculty that has lots of people who are subject to those kinds of attacks, it's sort of the first time that you experience it, it does feel incredibly isolating and you feel incredibly vulnerable. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it just would, it really, and I, I, I do think there's a, there's a measure even often of um, kind of sympathetic people of disbelief about what it's actually like. And so it's also, I think, I mean, for me, it's very important to hear you speak out about it because oftentimes, you know, you may, you may run into it or witness it or kind of in passing, but not realize that an individual is just being inundated and threatened on multiple platforms. And that's the other piece too, right? It's never just Twitter or Instagram. It's also Facebook and, and email and phone records and all. Yeah. It so is. It can feel like it's coming at you from every direction. And there is this, I mean, I think that whole feeling of isolation, like this is happening to me. Um, and, and also just this little piece of, and it's my fault because I, I'm not doing this right. I think that is so characteristic of the experience of racialized or gendered abuses, you know, and it clicks right into what we know about trauma, which is like, if you don't have validation of your trauma, if you don't see it as um, kind of a, a shared experience, something that is... Um, do you know what I mean? It's something that is not your fault, but actually is like has an origin that is outside of your body. Um, then that actually translates into worse trauma than if you, you know, than if you have a community that you're connected to and you understand these experiences are universal and that it has nothing to do with you. Um, it really mm -hmm. has to do with, you know, power structures outside of you. And so I think, um, I think that's the part it's like, 
it's it's like by definition we all feel like we're going through this alone um and that's what you know and that's what kind of builds on fear on reluctance to sort of stand up and speak out because it seems like there's only the downside mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think it's i mean that's really beautifully stated um because and and it makes me i guess it's just it, it connects to something else that i was interested in hearing your thoughts about which is the, the intersection, but like the isolation of this moment. And, you know, so in a sense, we lived through this national collective trauma of the Trump presidency, right? And then COVID, and then we each have our personal encounters. And then we're, we're experiencing grief um, alone. I mean, together, but also alone. I mean, I had this period of several weeks where I was, every week I had to call my mother and tell her that someone we knew had passed away from COVID. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I... I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about that, how, and, and um, if you have thoughts about how to best, I mean, sort of navigate it on, on a personal level, right? Um, and you are, re- you are navigating it on, on multiple, like a professional level, but you're also, you know, nurses and physicians have been at risk and hospital workers and, you know, I don't know if you, you have anything to help me <laughs> figure, figure it out. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's a really good question. And it, it has been such an issue because, and again, I cannot believe we're in year two of this, you know, because there's some things where I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when I had this phase of how I felt about it, you know, like a year ago now when we were first being like, I mean, I have a text from February 11th from a friend who was like, hey, is this coronavirus thing going to be a thing? And I wrote back and I said, I think so. That's our exchange. Like just this quick two thing. I know. I was like, I think it's going to be. And we we have passed that back and forth between, you know, between the two of us a couple of times being like, it was such a light conversation, you know? It's like, even when I said, I think so, there's no way I could have predicted all this. To but, support this you know, show last and Dub Lab's spring, progressive programming, it was basically like, go to dublab.com slash um, support. This can be over quick, but it's going to be hard. So let's just put our heads down and just get through. And I was basically like, okay, I did internship for a year. You know, that was like hard stuff. I had twins. That was a really hard year. You know, I was like, there's nothing I can't do for three to six months. And so it was basically like, sleep is optional right now. Um, we have stuff to do, you know, and it was basically like, there were, it's like from my, my hospital needing to plan to like being as a researcher, being like, there's data that we need to collect right now because this will never happen again to, you know, trying to become messengers um, and relay information um, in this coordinated way as best we can about face mask wearing and stuff like that. I mean, at the very beginning, it was like exhaustion is here, but we are built for this, you know, and there was kind of this pride among physicians that we were not weak, you know, that Mm -hmm. we, we had this tolerance for sleeplessness, for stress, for uh, crisis, that we had really been trained for. I mean, literally trained for. Um, and I think we didn't appreciate for a long time how much, yes, we're trained, but we're trained for very discrete short-term crises. You know, I mean, a bus turns over. I am ready for that. You know, there's an earthquake. I am ready for that. But it's like something that's as sustained as a p- pandemic that we have an inadequate response to where there appear to be no robust resources in any direction. I mean, so many of us were, you know, with a, a whole like public health uh, infrastructure that had been completely derailed. It, it was it was on this level that I think none of us were prepared for. And so I think it took me like four or five months to be like, okay, all right, you know, I'm, I'm like crying uncle here. Like we need to take a breath, you know, and figure out how we're sustaining ourselves for the long haul. And I think, um, you know, I think that's where I really became like, 
planned indulgence. You know, I mean, I have days where I'm like, today I'm making a plan for my kids or I'm asking this of my husband and I need to just watch TV for like eight hours. Yes. Like <laughs> really, really long time. Not news. Like I'm going to watch Bridgerton the entire thing twice, you know? <laughs> And I really actually like, I mean, I do those things so deliberately, not passively. You know, I'm not like, I happen to be sitting here. I'm really like, I need this weekend, this entire weekend, I'm not even going to read emails, you know? And so, I mean, I think that's been part of it. And then I think part of it too has been being like, you know, we're physically distant, but being like aggressively socially close. I mean, this has been part of like, I show up for every damn Yale thing that is planned, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's like, it's such an opportunity for connection. And I was not like a shower upper for those kind of things reliably in the past. But I think where there's a chance to connect really meaningfully with people. um, I mean, I text friends more than ever before, you know, it's like, I really try to just talk on the phone with people. And um, it's like, again, it's something that I'm not just like, "Ah, I feel like calling this person, but I'm like, I need to connect to people Um, Mm -hmm. and, and trying to build as much of that into my life as possible. I think, I think those are the things. Um, And then I think also just recognizing that, you know, it's, it was so interesting. There are a bunch of studies that were done early on, like of the docs who were in New York city at the epicenter of the pandemic Mm-hmm. And they were asking about anxiety and depression. Um, and we've seen this in different forms now. And people, yes, had tons of anxiety, had tons of depression, had a lot of very specific worries about, you know, risk and things like that. Um, but they also reported, actually, I think the the highest thing that was reported out in terms of how they were feeling was a sense of higher purpose. Oh, you know? yeah. I know. And I was like, we underestimate humans when we say things like uh, depression and anxiety are bringing down these healthcare workers. I mean, it's true. Those dep- it, was, it was so there, but we, I, I was so glad they asked that question about, you know, about this thing that elevated them as well, because it's there. And, you know, when we say things like humans now are going to be socially disconnected after the pandemic forever. It's like, I don't believe those things. Actually, I think we're actually going to come back stronger because we've really learned to appreciate it. And so um, hopefully like, you know, the permanent stamp on our psyche will weather everything we're going through. Um, It's just, you know, you know, it's really not going to be until fall. I think it just, I'm trying not to, while being positive about vaccine, I've been very conscious of not raising people's hopes about, you know, about getting back to normal or whatever too soon. So. You know, it's your description reminds me of how uh, veterans of the civil rights movement talk um, about, you know, who suffered through death and threat and beatings and talk about it as a glorious time because they were doing the work of transforming the world, you know? Um, and, and it's clear there's the effects of trauma, right? A lot of, I mean, I experience it with people who are veterans of the movement in my life and yet, you know, they sustain incredible amounts of joy um, because they had lived a meaningful life. Um, the other, I mean, you know, I have my, my father died some years ago and he was an epidemiologist and I have this memory of when he was, I mean, when I was, I don't know, maybe like 10 and he said, and he had tears in his eyes and he said, we can control HIV. There just isn't the, the will to do so. He's like, we know how to do. And, um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that, of course, now, right? And, you know, wondering if, if we had the will to do so collectively and if we could move, you know, the various sort of 
governmental actors, economic leaders, all that, right? What, what would we do now to respond to this pandemic and also all of the other forms of inequality that it exposes, you know, in terms of, in, in terms of health? I mean, obviously I'm not asking you to solve the world's problems, although I think you probably could, but <laughs> what would you, what would you say? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what is really obvious right now is that we can't create equity in an inequitable system. You know, I mean, it's like, I, I have a friend who's doing work at UVA and, um, you know, they were talking about, okay, we're going to distribute vaccine by um, emailing people and um, we'll create these categories and then we'll let people know when their time is by email. And then they realized that the custodial staff actually didn't have institutional emails, you know? So they were completely cut out of the information process, the basic information process of even which category they were in, where they could go for the vaccine, how to sign up. That whole bundle was administered through email. And it's, um, you know, I mean, there's also like, I know there's so much about, you know, how we shouldn't be relying on, you know, on digital systems anyway. But but aside from that, just like there, that's just to me was such a concrete example of the millions of ways in which we've just built up this structure that is um, well designed for the outcome it seems to seek, which is one of inequity, you know. And so, you know, and so there's all this hand waving right now about how do we build back trust in this moment? It's like, you don't have a chance in hell of building back trust. But, you know, it's like, please do not try to engage in that conversation. Trust is not something we can earn in this moment because we have things set up like this. And we can't fix that in the moment, you know. Um, so I think it's more like, how do we work despite our systems? Um, and I think there has to be so much discipline about how we administer vaccines, um, where they go, who gets first allocation um, and second allocation. And I think um, I'm actually in the process with my group of kind of building a library of examples of small ways that people are doing it. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, what I would like from the government is more structure and specificity around operationalizing ideals, you know, because this has been the year of ideals, you know, it's like, we need to apply health equity lens to everything. None of us believe in racism, we're all anti-racism. Okay, so show me, explain to me, because there are entire states that aren't even releasing data about vaccine distribution by race and ethnicity. So what is the commitment here to anti-racism if you can't even demonstrate any data about what your priorities are, um, or what your execution has been about, about, um, about you know, equitable vaccine, um, just, you know, what your, what your success rate has been. It's like, if you're not even looking at the data, you don't care. I mean, you fundamentally, whether that's on an individual basis or a structural basis, leadership basis, you don't care. There is zero commitment to equity if you're not measuring the thing that you're allegedly committed to. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's just like what I want, what I want is like data transparency and then operationalizing strategies, you know? And I think until that happens, it's so not, I mean, like my own state of Oregon has decided that teachers are the priority group, you know? So it's like, I mean, I'm an ER doc, so my approach is very literal. It's like, who has been dying? Because whoever has been dying, that's who should get the vaccine first, you know? And I think, um, you know, and I think, you know, who's who's exposed, who's getting disease and who's dying? Like, those should be the, the groups. And if you don't fall into one of those categories, then why are you at the front of the line? Um, and so, but I think states that have chosen not to do that, and actually, if you just did that, if you were just like, my priority list is who's dying and who's getting disease, um, if you just took that approach, uh, then it should naturally 
go to the elderly and people of color, right? Because that's who's getting disease and dying. And yet it's not happening. You know, I mean, we're having all these like New Jersey was like smokers, you know, it's like, maybe <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> Are smokers dying? I, I wasn't actually aware that smokers were getting disease and dying and maybe they are. And I don't know it. I mean, I think probably what they were trying to get at was, was, was chronic lung disease, some of which, you know, puts you at increased risk of COVID. But I think, you know, it's like the, when people go to operationalize, they're making these kind of decisions that are completely not equity informed. And so um, I think what I would like is, you know, for, our elected leaders, our health officials, um, at, you know, both at the federal level, at the state level, being like, here are really the principles to reverse the inequities that we have had thus far in the pandemic. Every resource, starting with testing, you know, starting with access to healthcare, even who gets the medications, you know, it's like every single step, who has PPE? It's like every single valuable resource in this pandemic has been distributed inequitably. I mean, if you look at remdesivir, which was like that first, you know, FDA, mm -hmm. um, you know, approved drug for the treatment COVID, we have hardly any treatment drugs, but remdesivir was one of those that had this kind of modest impact. But, you know, we were excited about it as a nation. Um, when they distributed the limited supply of remdesivir to Boston, it went everywhere to all these small private hospitals, went all around Boston, and it skipped Boston Medical Center, you know, which is where I trained. It's in South Boston, you know, it it's it is the the safety net hospital of that area, um, you know, provides most of the free care and serves um the biggest black population in Boston by far, you know, even close because of the way that like, there's such housing segregation in Boston. You know, I trained at Boston Medical Center. It's, my favorite institution, but it's like, they're like, where's our remdesivir? It's like, again, it was like systematically put in place that there'd be a fundamental inequity in the use of remdesivir. And then we saw a document, I mean, studies were published about, you know, what is the racial and ethnic breakdown of who got remdesivir um, when they went in the hospital and were diagnosed with COVID. And there was this extremely sharp breakdown. One of the early cancer studies just among cancer patients who were being treated more aggressively showed that Black Americans were about half as likely as white Americans to be treated with remdesivir. And you're like, of course, of course, you know? So anyway, so it's like, so then we get to vaccine. And I mean, there are so many issues and nuances, but it's like, um, uh, you know, and among them is, uh, it's it's kind of, I think it's like you've behaved, you know, the entire health system has behaved in a certain way up until this point, And then all of a sudden, we're going to behave differently. Like, that's weird, too. Do you know what I mean? It's like, even when you try to do the, the right thing, you've so set up things that it's even hard to execute, because then it seems like, you know, that the, it's like, a, you know, the motivation is what experimentation, it just feels off. Um, but it's also hard to reverse the compounding inequities. But but if we have like, you know, our only chance in hell by doing it in a very concerted effort with everybody on board, that that's what needs to happen. And so anyway, that was a really long answer to your question, but. But a wonderful one. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, what it, what, what it, it reminds me is that is, you know, Americans are so fixated on being innocent of any wrongdoing. It's like one of the aspects of our culture, right? But, but that, you know, what I think you have communicated so profoundly is that, you know, okay, well, we're, we, we all are participants in an unjust system. And then you accept that and then try to do something meaningful, nevertheless, even knowing that there has to be some major transformation to get to get to the just society, that that's what it means to be involved and of service. So, yeah. Yeah. I love the way you put that. And I do think, I think there's like, 
we chip away in the ways that we can at big change, you know, and then in the moment we do what we do, which is develop out a whole bunch of coping strategies, you know, things that just fill in the cracks here and there until we can do that big change. I think that's what this year is about. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Esther. Thank you. It was just great to <laughs> talk to you. <laughs> we have to do it in real life. <laughs> I would love to actually. Let's, um, you know, let's let's do some. I, yeah, I would just love to be in conversation with you and see what what we could do together. Okay, sounds good to me. All right, take care. Take care. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support. 